Well, that was the opening music to Blade Runner. And this is part two of our review of Blade Runner, The Final Cut. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net and on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews. And I'm Matt Johnson coming to you from sunny North Bend today. And Bob Johnson here in Los Angeles where the weather's a little overcast with some rain expected. Welcoming everyone back to Blade Runner, the uh, final cut. Unless there's another cut in another 10 years, who knows? It's such a good movie, they might still be tinkering (laughs) with it. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) The final, final cut. (laughs) I gotta stop. (laughs) And we return to our our film. Yes, where we left off. I got the order a little bit wrong in part one. Um, earlier I had said that there was that scene where Deckard uh, does that scan of the photograph and then does that zooming in and panning around with his voice control. And that, that actually happened right before the scene where we go to the nightclub and we try to find out. And he's doing a bit of investigation on that... Uh, scale that he found and he finds out that it's a snake scale and he actually finds out who makes the snake scale fish was manufactured locally. Finest quality, superior workmanship. There is a maker serial number 9906947XB71. Interesting. Not fish, snake scale. Snake. I Abdul Ben Hassan. He make this snake. And it's pretty cool because they have these uh, scanning electron microscopes at these uh, street stands. Apparently, these artificial life forms are so common that you can just go down to the street and like bu- either buy one or get one uh, identified. <laughs> I'll take that one over there. I have to imagine they were expensive, though. Well, and especially the snake one, because we find out that he, he hasn't just sold it to anybody, but he sold it to uh, this nightclub owner. He goes to the nightclub, and everybody's dressed in, I, I feel like they're all dressed in like these 1920s like flapper outfits, you know, at that nightclub when he get, yeah. pulls up to the bar to get a drink. I think that was really uh, well, well played by the director that he would put him in those costumes, because in a sense, they're kind of timeless. And you could think, well, in in fifty years they'll come back again. It's a it is kind of a weird mix of like the twenties and, and a little bit of the eighties and and just some other maybe genres or time periods thrown in there. But it does make it feel timeless, and it also really feels like a a detective like film noir movie right here. Oh yes, definitely. I could almost see Humphrey Bogart playing this role. Yeah, yeah, or Robert Mitchum. He did a lot of the film noirs. He was more rugged. He might have been better suited to handle those replicants. The, the uh, I forget the name of the nightclub owner, but he's real smarmy. And, and uh, he, at first he plays it off like he doesn't know what he's ta- uh, Deckard's talking about. But then 
he flashes his badge and he's like, oh, well, yes, uh, <laughs> give this man a free drink. <laughs> uh, he's really on the hunt to find, is it Zora Salome? Zora, yeah. But in between finding Zora and getting a little bit drunk, he decides to call Rachel on the video phone. Hello? I've had people walk out of me before, but not when I was being so charming. I'm in a bar here now, down in the fourth sector. Taffy Lewis is on the line. Why don't you come on down here and have a drink? I don't think so, Mr. Deckard. That's not my kind of place. Go someplace else. And Rachel's like, uh, stop drunk calling me. <laughs> I'm sick of this. Walk that off. <laughs> so she shuts that down pretty quick. Uh, but then we get that great scene where he pretends to be that uh, hole-in-the-wall inspector. Yeah. Excuse me, Miss Salome. Can I talk to you for a minute? I'm from the American Federation of Variety Artists. Yeah? I'm not here to make you join. No, ma'am. That's not my department. Actually, uh, I'm from the uh, Confidential Committee on Moral Abuses. Committee of Moral Abuses? Yes, ma'am. There's been some reports that the management have been taking liberties with the artists in this place. I don't know nothing about it. Have you felt yourself to be exploited in any way? How do you mean exploited? Well, like to get this job. I mean, did, did you do or... or were you asked to do anything that's lewd or unsavory or otherwise uh, repulsive to, to your person, huh? <laughs> Are you for real? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'd like to, to check your dressing room, if I may. For what? For, uh, for holes. Holes? Well, you, you'd be surprised what a guy would go through to get a glimpse of a beautiful body. No, I wouldn't. Uh, little uh, dirty holes they uh, drill in the walls so they can watch a lady undress. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Weasel. <laughs> she saw she saw right through that though. Yeah, she's like, oh really? Hole in the wall, Inspector? Huh? Okay, <laughs> sure. Hold my snake while I go take a shower. <laughs> I forgot the video phone. Uh, can you? Uh, Refresh my memory. How, did it look pretty realistic for the for the film? Or, or do well, we I mean, see it? Was it? A, I can't remember. It was a CRT screen, but it was it was like a phone booth with almost like a phone booth with a video. Oh, video screen okay. Now it. that comes back to me. I'd forgotten for a minute. A lot in this film is very uh, futuristic looking, and it's held up really well. We talk. Yeah, but it's still interesting that they never could have predicted that the rise of like the cell phone and, and like the smartphone and how that would change everything. It it's still kind of based in the in the concepts of what telecommunications was at the time, with maybe one step ahead with the video. Because you know, AT and T at the time I think was selling a video phone uh, that you could use in the early '80s, if I remember correctly. Oh, okay, okay. Zora finishes her shower. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, 
they have a little discussion while she gets dressed, and then she gives him a nice karate chop to the neck. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Take that, punk. And this is where I think it's like, uh, I'm not sure if a, if a human would have been able to like come back from that. Like he, he's stunned, but he gets back up and he starts uh, chasing her. Again, this kind of is one of the pieces that I think supports him being a replicant. Well, it adds, it adds to the mystery of is he or is he not a replicant? Yeah, it doesn't. It, yeah, it's for sure not. It's not definite, but it could lead you to think that. And then there's a great chase scene through these crowded streets. You just get a sense of just how overcrowded some parts of the city are. But the, it's, it's weird contrasted with how desolate some parts of the city are at the same time. It's very claustrophobic feeling, too. Because there's always it's always nighttime or dark and and wet looking. Yeah, yeah wet. But then he sees her and he's about ready to shoot her through the crowd, but she runs away and and he doesn't get a good shot. And then we do get that amazing, amazing shot of her running through those glass plates while I he's know. shooting her. Wow, not just one but two. She went in one side and came out the other. Yeah, that's that's pretty brutal. And she, she gets shot a couple times and gets up and keeps running and then gets shot, I think, one more time. You know, I was thinking over the weekend, uh, I, don't, I didn't delve into it very deeply, but I almost think that the Blade Runners had to be replicants because that, that way they would understand how they think and feel and, and would, would have a better sense of what these uh, artificial uh, beings were. I don't think a human would have that same sensitivity. So I, I'm on the side that he was a replicant. Yeah, and just the, the physical stamina and the intelligence yeah. to track them down. Yeah. We, we, may, we may never but, know. But I don't think... Well, he never gives any indication himself one way or no. the other that he, that he knows or that he doesn't know. Um, I get the feeling that he thinks he's human, though. Yes. Yeah, me too. Well, so that's that's the end of Zora. Yeah, and as Zora, as he's looking over at Zora, Byron James's character Leon is watching as well, and he's not happy. He's he looks very yeah, devastated. And uh, as Deckard is kind of leaving, he gets uh, ambushed by Leon. Yeah, Bryant shows up with Edward James Olmos's yeah. character Gaff, and they have a little talk about how he's not done yet. Right, that great. You look almost as bad as that skin jog left on the sidewalk. I'm going home. Good luck with this guy, guy. He's a goddamn one-man slaughterhouse, that's what he is. Four more to go. Come on, Gav, let's go. Three. There's three to go. There's four. The, the, that skin job you vacated at Tyrell Corporation? Rachel. Disappeared, vanished. Didn't even know she was a replicant. Something to do with a brain implant, says Tyrell. Come on, Gav. Drink some for me, up out. Decker gets this look on his face like, you want me to retire Rachel? She, she doesn't even know she's a replicant. Yeah, there's a great little speech there about that. And, and I think this is where he, it's kind of a turning point for him. It's like, I don't think I can do that. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that, he's shocked by that. 
I tell you, he, he does such a really excellent job of playing the Blade Runner. I read that behind the scenes, he and, and uh, uh, the director uh, didn't always see the eye, eye, eye to eye. Ridley Scott and he had different views of how each or some of the scenes should be played out. What I like about um, Harrison Ford's portrayal in this movie is that a lot of it is just uh, his facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Or kind of like the way that he tilts his head. And uh, I like that he's a very physical actor that way. He, um, I think also the, 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 the different way that he and, and the director would see scenes, I think that added to the quality. Sometimes I'm amazed at these movies that are really excellent and timeless. Behind the scenes, there's been all kinds of trauma and, and disagreements and all that. That's happened with... Like Tootsie was that way, and and uh, there was a bit of that with Casablanca, and on the screen you'd think, man, that, they must have been a seamless team putting this together. Mm-hmm. When in fact, not the case. Well, and I think they were running into some issues with like the scale of what Ridley was putting together, and I think it it got a little bit out of hand in terms of what the uh, producers were thinking it was going to be, and what he was asking for in terms of money and time and. They really had to um, double down about halfway through the production to make sure they could stay, you know, somewhat within the budget that they had set. Because, I mean, Ridley was like re- basically, like you said, building a, a little mini city yeah. on the back lot. He, he did. He, he became obsessed, and and you know he he is so good at building these other worlds, like a- Alien Covenant and and Prometheus and all. It's like. I hope he I hope he continues to make more versions of uh, the Alien movie. He's a genius. Well, I think he there is another one in the production. Oh, is there? So oh, great. Yeah. I tell you, they're gonna get the, they're gonna get a payback. So yeah. So after Bryant and Gaff have that little talk, then that's where he meets up with Leon, and he looks like he's about to get killed by Leon, and then he, Leon gets shot in the back of the head, and it's Rachel. Yes, is there and Rachel saved him, and then they go back to Deckard's apartment and they have a little talk and Rachel's kind of come to grips with the fact that she's a replicant at this point, and there's a great little touch there where he takes a drink of something out of a glass and blood like goes into the into the liquid. I know, and it's just little things like that that make it so real to me. Because that, that, that was not necessary at all, but it just added a little bit more realism to it. It seems like the films that you and I really liked the best are those with those minor touches that a lot of people wouldn't even think to do. They just add that much. Yeah, I think we talked about it in the part one of this review, but the, there's a scene where there's just some bicyclists biking down the street. Yes. as uh, Yeah, we did talk yeah. about that. And, and just those little touches, yeah. I think there's something here that I think I wanted to mention too, which is the replicants have a reflection in the back of their eyes, and uh, like this, there's a scene here where Rachel's eyes kind of glow orange in the back. Yep. And they did that on purpose to kind of give them an otherworldly look, which I think really is effective. When she saved Decker, that's when he decided that he was not going to retire her. Yeah, I think it, I think he's planning how they're going to escape in the back of his mind. <laughs> and then we get to... Well, I think there's a love scene here. 
But then we cut back to the toy maker and Pris and uh, Roy Batty and and uh, no, it's just Roy Batty at this point. There's the, they're the only two left, right? Pris and and Roy. Yes, yes. And somewhere I I don't think we talked about it last time, but or maybe we did, where Batty goes to visit uh, Eldon Tyrell. And he has no. That's that's that's, that's coming, coming up. up. Because that's he, a great he, set of scenes. So this is where Roy and Pris are at um, uh, the toy, JF Sebastian's apartment, and JF Sebastian is he knows they're both replicants, and he's saying that he helped build them, and Roy wants to know if there's a way to extend the life span. No, night takes queen. Won't do. Why are you staring at us, Sebastian? Because you're so different. You're so perfect. Yes. What generation are you? Nexus 6. Ah, I knew it. Because I do genetic design work for the Terrell Corporation. There's some of me in you. <laughs> Show me something. Like what? Like anything. We're no computers, Sebastian. We're physical. I think, Sebastian. Therefore, I am. Very good, Pris. Now show me why. What do you mean? Similar problems. Accelerated decrepitude. I don't know much about biomechanics, Roy. I wish I did. Mm. If we don't find help soon, Pris hasn't got long to live. We can't allow that. Is he good? Who? Your opponent. Oh, Dr. Terrell? I've only beaten him once in chess. He's a genius. He designed you. Maybe he could help. I'd be happy to mention it to him. Sure. Better if I talk to him in person. Hmm. But I understand he's sort of hard man to get to. Yes. Here. Will you help us? I can't. We need you, Sebastian. You're our best and only friend. So I think, you know, Roy is, is going to use J.F. Sebastian as a way to get to see Tyrell. And, and I think Tyrell was always their target, but they just had to find a way to get to see yeah, him. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, 
And every time Roy talks about that, he really, he it's very ominous that it's it my it's foreboding that it's not going to go well when he gets together with Tyrell. No, for sure. But at this, but you know, watching this movie so many times, I really like I said in the first part of this review, like started to identify more with the replicants and. There's a scene here where they're very childlike. Pris and Roy are sitting together on this chair and they're looking up at J.F. Sebastian almost like a, a father figure or like an uncle or, or something, like an older uh, authority figure. And they're talking to him about their limitations and, and it, it just, yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways they are, they're only like four or five years old, uh, real time, even though they have all these memories and these capabilities of, of an adult. And they've been out into these other worlds and seen terrific and horrible things, but but yeah, they're they're still just sort of immature, and all their memories that they started with have been implanted. Yeah. So let's see. Roy uh, gets J.F. Sebastian to call up. No, they're, no, they're going to go on a little trip to the pyramid. Tyrell and J.F. Sebastian have been playing chess kind of remotely. And it's like, oh, J.F. Sebastian has this great move and he convinces Tyrell to let him up so that they can finish their chess game in person. 66,000 Prosser and Anchor pitch. Hmm. Trade. Trade at... Blue entry. A Mr. J.F. Sebastian... One six four one seven. At this hour, what can I do for you, Sebastian? Queen to Bishop Six, check. Nonsense. Just a moment. Hmm. Queen to Bishop Six. Ridiculous. Queen. Bishop Six. Hmm. Knight. Takes. Queen. on your mind, Sebastian. What are you thinking about? Bishop to King Seven. Checkmate. Bishop to King Seven. Checkmate, I think. Mm -hmm. Got a brainstorm, huh, Sebastian? Milk and cookies kept you away, huh? Let's discuss this. You better come up, Sebastian. Little does he know that Roy Batty is there in the elevator with him, which seems a little odd. Like, I would think that a secure elevator would have some kind of video connection. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was out of order. That yeah. place where he lived looked like a fortress where Tyrell lived. Yeah, there was something I, I've been watching Westworld season two. I, I'm trying to catch up to the latest season. But there's a, there's a scene, I think it's in the third episode, where they show this apartment and the decoration of the interior of the apartment looks a lot like the decoration of, of Deckard's apartment. It has like a similar wall covering 
And I was wondering if there was a callback, a little really subtle callback to Blade Runner in Westworld uh, through some of, some of that. Oh, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to go on a kind of behind-the-scenes tour of Warner Brothers and their lot, well, probably four or five years ago. And it was a, I was blown away by the fact that they have inventoried everything that's ever been used, not just by Warner Brothers, but by a number of other studios. So if you were making this film or you were doing Westworld, you could go over and look at their inventory of things that are already available and then rent them. So it's very possible oh, cool. that they wanted to look for a certain thing, and so they went and got it that way. And... It, I'm gonna look, I'm gonna do a side by side because I th I'm pretty sure it was the exact same uh, wall covering like wall decoration in both and I think that would be such an awesome <laughs> little touch that would be so cool that's such an in in that is a real insider and you thing wouldn't see that, that. Uh, if you only watch Westworld one time you might miss it or might not have seen Blade Runner or if you if you hadn't seen Blade Runner like twenty times what was interesting <laughs> just one other note on my tour of Warner Brothers. They had a kind of a loading dock area, and backed up to the loading dock were two large moving van trucks with logos. One was from 20th Century Fox, and the other one was from Paramount. So oh, interesting. <laughs> That's so cool. They have a whole business just leasing out, renting out. Warner Brothers uh, equipment and, and stuff Where, in the warehouse. That's a lot of storage oh, space. The, Holy smokes. It's, it's, yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's like walking through one of those giant fulfillment centers. Uh, that the companies have it's just huge, and it's all they've got it categorized down to every detail on the computer. A huge database, wow. big business. What was it? Was it twenty? Was which which studio was it that went through that big purge? We talked about that during um, Logan's Run, I remember, because that was right around the time that that was happening. Was that Twentieth Century Fox? A MGM did. Oh, MGM. MGM did, yeah, and then that was it. to a lesser degree, some of the other ones because. They had to really change their business models as it as the whole industry changed to independent production and all. But I think it was MGM yeah. that they sold off uh, a whole lot of their studio and and um, and uh, buildings and that kind of thing to re to uh, generate cash. Yeah. Oh, so I'm I'm playing the movie along here as we're talking. So, so back to Blade Runner. But I, I we're just at that scene where Rory gives dr tyrell a kiss yeah, yeah like you're my father kind of thing oh. and then he just oh he crushes his head and like puts his thumbs into his eyes oh I'm surprised you didn't come here sooner it's not an easy thing to meet your maker and what can he do for you and the maker repair what he makes. Would you like to be modified? Stay here. I had in mind something a little more radical. What? What seems to be the problem? Death. Death. Well, I'm afraid that's a little out of my jurisdiction. You... I want more life, Father. The facts of life. To make an alteration in the 
Evolvement of an organic life system is fatal. A coding sequence cannot be revised once it's been established. Why not? Because by the second day of incubation, any cells that have undergone reversion mutations give rise to revertant colonies like rats leaving the sinking ship. Then the ship sinks. What about EMS recombination? We've already tried it. Ethyl, methane, sulfonate as an alkylating agent and a potent mutagen. It created a virus so lethal the subject was dead before he left the table. Then a repressive protein that blocks the operating cells. Wouldn't obstruct replication, but it does give rise to an error in replication so that the newly formed DNA strand carries the mutation and you've got a virus again. But uh, this, all of this is academic. You were made as well as we could make you. But not to last. The light that burns twice as bright burns half as long. And you have burned so very, very brightly, Roy. Look at you. You're the prodigal son. You're quite a prize. I've done questionable things. Also extraordinary things. Revel in your time. Nothing the god of biomechanics wouldn't let you in heaven. And in the uh, international version, it's even more graphic. Yeah, yeah, I can see why they may not have put it into all the various versions of the film. Yeah, that that's the end of Tyrell, and that's the end of any hope that uh, Roy has of ever having a longer life. Yeah, and J.F. Sebastian, I think, is like uh, he's freaking out. <laughs> can I just go now? I think my work here is done. And no, but I don't think J.F. Sebastian makes it out alive. Either. I was trying to. No. I was going to ask you. Do we? I don't think we see in the film what happens to him. Do we? No, we don't, but basically we we see him running off and Roy is like stalking after him like a terminator. Yeah. And then we cut then we cut to a beautiful scene of uh, an owl with those glowing eyes and then we cut to a scene of Roy going down the elevator shaft with looking out the windows and seeing the sky is clear and he sees stars. Oh, that's and right. I think it might be the only time that we see like anything other than just rain and darkness i forgot about but that. he sees the stars and i'm wondering if he's like he's thinking back to his time out in space at that point he must be because he knows his life is coming to an end and as he yeah. does in his uh, kind of final soliloquy he reminisces about that and what he's seen yeah which is one so of the we... finest scenes ever done i think oh for sure yeah i definitely want to talk about that but then we cut back to Deckard sitting in his car and some street people come by and try to steal some stuff off his car. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, get away, get out of here. He's down by the, uh, isn't he down by the old hotel or apartment house that he's looking for uh, Sebastian? Yeah, and he's getting hassled by another police officer. And he's like, I'm also a police officer, so back off. Back yeah. off. But then this is where he has the showdown with uh, Pris, and oh, uh, Pris is quite 
physically fit. Does some backflips and lands right on his neck. I remember watching that for the first time in the in the theater in in Bellevue, and I thought, "Holy smokes, that would have killed most people." Well, that again, yeah, like he's he's stronger than just a normal human being, I think, because again, she not only lands on him and like tries to crush his head, but takes and karate chops both sides of his head. <laughs> no, like, ouch. And her hair is like like she was plugged in. It's just standing straight up. And the eye makeup and all. It's really kind of yeah. frightening. And there's a really, really neat thing that happens to, in terms of like plot development for me is uh, she's coming at him for another run and then he shoots her. And it's almost like it's almost like she's discharging like a ton of energy. Uh-huh. She's like flopping around on the ground yep. and like freaking out. And it, and it just gives you a sense of just how much power yeah. they had. And it, it's almost this release of the energy from her body coming out when she got shot. That's a, that's a good point because all that is coming out. Yeah, that I, I still can't get over how they redressed the uh, Bradbury building to make it look like such a derelict dump. Well, and, and they amazing. have rain coming down inside yeah. there. And <laughs> they must have had every permit needed in the world to get in there and do that. <laughs> Very well done. And then it's the classic cat and mouse set up here between Roy and Deckard and Deckard takes a shot and just barely misses him and Roy's like you got to be quicker than that and he's just playing with he him. is it's like a cat and mouse game and and Roy may not know I mean yeah Roy may not know that Deckard may be a replicant he may be an equal he may think he's just an inferior human without his strength I don't know yeah I don't know either but I, I still think even I think Roy might be a little bit more powerful than than Deckard even because there's the speculation that Deckard is a Nexus Eight or something uh-huh. like that. He's like a he's like a version later than Roy and and the rest of them. Yeah, there's like these there's this idea in 2049, uh, Blade Runner 2049, where there's these different classes of of replicants for different purposes. You can have replicants that are just built for working in mines and and really hard physical labor or you could have them for like a pleasure colony. It's just it's just weird, but you know, it, it takes kind of and develops some of the ideas in this movie and, and takes it to another kind of step. That that again lends itself to a thinking of Westworld. You know, I mean the use of robots and and how advanced they get Makes me wonder in a hundred years what will that be like. I think I wonder if Westworld, the original movie, wasn't a bit of an inspiration for this because there's there are definitely some similar themes of how people are using these other beings that are essentially human in in most ways that you can tell, especially in the TV show. Like the they're they're pretty much indistinguishable from humans in the TV show. I remember the original movie the. Uh... The Roy Baddie character was Yul Brenner, mm-hmm. dressed entirely in black. Yep, and he was unstoppable. Yeah, even when he lost his face. Yeah, because I remember at the end of uh, Westworld where the Man in Black is caught on fire and he's like all melted, but he's still coming after him like a Terminator. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of tie-in between these films, or in in our mind there is. I don't know. Um, so Deckard gets another shot off and kind of uh, grazes Roy's uh, side of his head, but then Roy grabs uh, Deckard's hand and pulls it through the wall and then breaks his fingers. Oh, oh yeah. 
Oh, that looks like oh. it hurt. That sound that it makes too. And then, and then even better is that Deckard puts them back in place. I don't. I guess he didn't break them. He just dislocated them. But then he puts them back in the socket. Uh. <laughs> and for me, it's one more sign that he is a replicant. Yeah. Because I don't know of anybody that's a human that could do that. The the pain would you'd faint. But then there's a really touching scene oh. where Roy is crying over Pris's body. And again, this is where I really feel like they're more human than human in some ways. Like he, he's got emotions. He's really struggling with the fact that he's going to be dying soon and that all of his friends have died. And their mission to Earth was a failure. Like they didn't get what they had come to Earth to get. Yeah. And he realizes that it's all come to an end and he's lost his best friends. Maybe his only friends who knows what it was like on those ships yeah and we're we're nearing that part let's see have we and then so then uh, uh, deckard is like running away and he's just trying to get out of there because i think he's oh my gosh this this guy is i'm not gonna be able to take him down so he climbs up through the ceiling and then he's up on the roof and then roy comes up a different way and and then this is where deckard has to jump across the building but he's either so tired or, or injured that he can't quite make the jump. Can't quite, yeah. And he's slipping down. And then Roy jumps over like it's no big deal. It might as well be like a two-foot jump for him. And just as Deckard's about to fall, uh, Roy reaches down and saves him and, and lifts him up with one arm. Just lifts his whole body up and lays him down on top of the building there. Yeah, like he was a doll. Yeah. He's so strong. And just before then, that, he, 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 he pushed the nail through his hand, remember that? To keep it, yes. to kind of keep his uh, his body adrenaline running so that he wouldn't die. Yeah, he was afraid he was going to die. Yeah, it's, oh, wow. That's got to hurt. And it wasn't just a small nail either. either. It was, <laughs> it was about size. six inches long. Jeez. And then we get the, the, the iconic, the, the best scene in the movie for me is where Roy sits down on the roof in the rain with a giant neon sign behind him and he's holding a white dove. And he gives that speech. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. The things that he's seen in his life and they're all going to be gone like tears and rain. That, that's such a well done. That is the best. Yeah, that is the best scene in the movie, I think. And you said that uh, Rutger Howard kind of wrote that himself. He wrote that, yeah, the, the night before they write. shot that. He, there was a different speech. He looked at it and he says, "This isn't. I don't think this is what Roy would say. I think this is what Roy would say. It would be more like this." And Ridley Scott looked at it and goes, "Yeah, do that." <laughs> I like that a lot better. Uh, 
That is, that's a tragic, and he just shuts down. So why do you think, why do you think he saved Deckard at the end? I was I kind of debate back and forth about that. Oh, in my mind, it's clear he was saving another replicant, and he wanted to have somebody to tell his story to before he died. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, actually. I, I like and, that. And I, I think he respected the fact that Deckard kept after him. Almost yeah. like they were two of a kind, just on opposite mm-hmm. sides. They were both kind yeah. of running out their program in a way, almost like doing what. Yeah. Yeah, but I think also like um, Roy and his crew broke from their programming, came back to Earth, which was, they were forbidden to do that, but they did it anyway. And then also, we know now that Deckard is planning to escape with Rachel, which is also not something that he's supposed to do. So both of them are going against, quote-unquote, their programming to follow their own desires and their own uh, wants and needs. So really, they're, they're... almost like parallel characters in a lot of ways. They are. It reminds me of scenes in other films that we've reviewed. In The Defiant Ones, when uh, Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis, near the end of the film, one of them is rescued by the other one, and you wonder why they do that. It's, it's, it's a theme that I've seen in other films as well. Yeah. But I love that final. And then, of course, Gaff arrives... It kind of gives him a warning almost. I think he, I think he's giving him a warning and also giving him an out. Because I think he's supposed. I think Gaff is supposed to come after Deckard because Gaff is also a Blade Runner. Yeah. He shouts, "It's too bad she won't live." But then again, who does? Yeah. It's another great line. I I Gaff's character. I really really uh, enjoy Edward James. Uh, Almost, especially since the film he did in the, I think it was in the late 80s, Stand and Deliver, where he's a mathematics teacher in an inner city school. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he, he brings about a transformation of the students to, to enjoy and love mathematics, arithmetic, science. That excellent was a good actor. movie. Yeah, he's an excellent actor. He shows up in Blade Runner 2049. Um, for just one scene, but I, I like that they brought his character back for for a scene because, yeah, I think he's he's pretty integral. His character is pretty integral to the the it whole is. plot. I wouldn't be surprised if they do another sequel to Blade Runner. They definitely set it up just, for one. I mean, it, yeah, it's a standalone movie for sure, but there's some some things in there that would open themselves up to another movie. Well, and then so we get Dick, to the end where he yeah. goes back to his apartment and he thinks Rachel is already dead because she's just laying still under these blankets on his bed. But she's just asleep. And they get their stuff together and they head out. And he sees an origami on the on the floor in front of his door. And so we know that, that Gaff has been there. Yeah, that's his calling card. That's Gaff's calling card. Yep. And he didn't. To, he didn't kill him. Rachel, so he's no. letting them go. He he knows that they're gonna run. And a much, it's a much much finer Too ending. They get in the elevator and and then the music rises just, up. And the way that yeah. the it's just perfectly timed. The elevator closes and the music comes up, and you're just like wow.
I want to go see that again. I'll get back in line and watch it again. <laughs> in my imagination, I, I played out different things that happen as they as they uh, arrive at ground level and take off. Yeah, we don't find out immediately what happens in Blade Runner 2049, but we find out kind of ultimately what happens to them. And the whole crux of Blade Runner 2049 plays around kind of what happened with Rachel and Deckard. So I have to watch that. I have not seen that. Yeah. I, I watched so many movies, you'd think I'd seen it, but I haven't. So that's on my uh, a list for this week, awesome. among other films. I have to watch Once Upon a Time in the West again. I drive Nancy crazy. <laughs> not another. <laughs> that uh. music is in my head. Stop. Stop. Yeah. Well, it goes without saying almost that I give this film a 10. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, if, if, if you couldn't scale. have guessed that, that was a, it was kind of a given. <laughs> yes. Oh, wonderful, wonderful film. And I, like you said, the last time we talked about it, it wasn't that successful in the uh, theaters. No, it really it wasn't. It barely broke even with its budget. I think the budget was like $30 million and it made $33 million or something like that. It's recouped some of that over time, but still, it wasn't the blockbuster that some of these are. But it certainly has become a classic um, since that time, and it's spawned many iterations of kind of the theme, and definitely, like I said last time, spawned the cyberpunk genre in film. Yeah. Oh, we oh, should talk yes. about Sid Mead and his and his visuals. So um, when they were developing the, the uh, look of the film, they hired a graphic designer slash artist uh, named Sid Mead, and I'll put a link to some of his galleries, but he's just an amazing like futurist who is able to kind of bring a futuristic element to what would in the future be kind of like everyday settings. And uh, what a perfect artist to come and, and render like what the street scenes would look like or what the cars would look like. And he was originally just uh, hired to do some initial like design work, but he ended up staying on and was really integral to the whole look of the film was he uh attached to the uh blade runner 2049 uh, no I, i'm not no i don't think so i'm not sure what much beyond that i don't know much about him yeah it's a it's a fun little rabbit hole to go down on youtube there's a lot of videos about sid mead and his influence and uh, not just on uh, blade runner but other films and and other uh media as well very influential graphic I, artist. I'm gonna look. I, I'm gonna look him up. I never have done that. He was probably involved in a lot of the films. Yeah, he did. Like a, Alien. Or, he did other films. He he wasn't with Alien. That was H.R. Geiger. But uh, yeah, I'll put a link to some things in the show notes, okay. and you can check them out. Excellent. All right. Uh, so up next, it's uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, which we've both watched. I've watched it twice now. <laughs> You've seen it many times. I think times. I've seen it maybe three or four times, but there's something new each time I see it. And this last time, uh, it just hit me even more than earlier versions that I've watched, or earlier times that I've watched it. Yeah. I love that movie. It makes me want to watch two that he made that I've only, I haven't seen one of them. Duck, You Sucker. And then Once Upon a Time in America, I saw long ago one time. He did a trilogy yeah, it's a trilogy of these like Once Upon a Time movies. Yeah, yeah, and he was going to do a huge film about the uh, 
the uh, World War II siege of Stalin of uh, Leningrad, and before he could get it off the ground, he died of a heart attack. Oh, bummer! That would have been cool. So it, it never, never, never. Nobody picked that up and carried it forward. Some of these people are amazingly talented. I was reading about the uh, the music from Once Upon a Time in the West and the career of the uh, composer. Oh man, he's like. He's still active at 91. He's so well known for those spaghetti westerns, but he's done so many different movies and so many different styles of music, and he's just an incredible composer. And most of his children are involved in the same same area of music. Well, anyway, this was fun. It was. I'm glad we had enough time to do it justice. Yeah, it's fun to do one where we kind of dive into the movie scene by scene. We haven't done that in a while, so... All right, well, that was our review of Blade Runner from 1982. And coming to you from North Bend, it's Matt Johnson. And from Los Angeles, it's Bob Johnson wishing everyone happy movie watching.